0: May the peace of Christ be with you. This is Molly Vetter, Senior Pastor of the Westwood United Methodist Church in Los Angeles. Welcome to our Sanctuary Gathering podcast. Here we share the sermon preached on Sunday as a part of our Sanctuary Gathering. We hope that in these words, you will be drawn closer to God and made more ready to love your neighbor. As a congregation, we embrace the words of the Hebrew prophet that are etched into the stairs that lead to our building. The calling to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. We also believe that we're a richer congregation for the diversity of people who participate in our community, and we celebrate the diversity of age, race, gender identity, and sexual orientation that participate in our church. You are welcome in this place, and we hope you will participate we invite you to do your own theology, to wrestle with questions of faith as we seek out what it means to be faithful Christians today. You're welcome to join us not only by listening in to this podcast, but we also invite you to join in our congregational life. Every Sunday, you're welcome to join us for worship at 9 30 a.m. You can join us in our beautiful sanctuary in Los Angeles at the corner of Warner and Wilshire, or online via our church Facebook page. All are welcome in our midst, and we thank you for being a part of our church. May these moments be a blessing to
1: you today. Good morning. This scripture reading is from Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 through 20. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how can its saltiness be restored? If no longer good for anything, but is thrown out and trampled underfoot, you are the light of the world. A city built on a hill cannot be hid. No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it under the bushel basket, but on the lampstand, and gives light to all in the house." In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven. Do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come out to not to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one letter, not one stroke of a letter, will pass from the law until all is accomplished." Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is a word of God for the people of God.
0: Our second scripture reading today comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. It continues a series we've been following in these Sundays between Epiphany and Transfiguration, part of this letter that Paul writes to the church in Corinth, a church that was clearly struggling with tensions within their community as people sought to understand how to be Christian together, both Jews and Greeks, people who came from different traditions, and worldviews who understood wisdom and law in different ways. This passage continues his teaching as he begins to speak into the needs of the community. I invite you to listen for the word of God. When I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming the mystery of God to you in lofty words or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ, and him crucified. And I came to you in weakness, and in fear, and in much trembling. My speech and my proclamation were not with plausible words of wisdom, but with a demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might rest not on human wisdom, but on the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do speak wisdom, Though it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to perish. But we speak God's wisdom, secret and hidden, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the human heart conceived, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For what human being knows what is truly human except the human spirit that's within? So also no one comprehends what's truly God's except the Spirit of God. Now we have received, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit that is from God, so that we may understand the gifts bestowed on us by God. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Before my sermon, I want to share news of our church family, and that's of the death of Bob Westling, of our congregation. Bob was a member of this church for decades, and a leader in our congregation, we give thanks for his life and pray for comfort for all those who grieve him. I invite you to join me in a prayer for Judy and the family as we give thanks for Bob's life. Holy God, we pray in gratitude for the gift of your son, our friend and neighbor, member of our own body, Bob Westling, we pray that you would receive him into your love and give comfort to all who mourn. In your holy name we pray. Amen. I ha- also have other news of our extended church family. This week I had the privilege of baptizing someone, a man named Jack Miller, who's at the UCLA hospital. It's sort of unusual to do a, ho- a baptism like that, it happened in collaboration with his home church in Ankeny, Iowa. He's there awaiting a procedure, and in conversation with his home pastor, decided this was the right moment for baptism. So we'll probably not get to welcome him into our church family in a way that we could share coffee together, but he is a part of our extended family. So we welcome into the communion uh, Jack Miller. Will you pray with me now? Oh holy God, I pray your wisdom that my words and our thoughts and our lives would reflect the fullness and beauty of your grace. We pray in your holy name. Amen. For these several weeks we've been following a set of readings from Paul's first letter to the Corinthian church and also following teachings of John Wesley, the founder of our Methodist movement, whose theology and practice helped give birth to Methodist churches everywhere and our United Methodist Church. Uh, John Wesley taught a theology he called Christian perfection, which is a bit of a troubling term because it is tempting to understand it as something like perfectionism, which is the opposite of what Wesley intended, rather than being a teaching that expects some kind of flawlessness of people who seek after Christ He accepted that we would always get it a little bit wrong, but believed that we might, by pursuing God's love, be continuously worked on, perfected from day to day as we get better and better at living love of God and neighbor with our whole selves. So it's really a theology of ongoing work, a belief that we can be the ones who offer grace to the world, who reach a perfection in an open-hearted, grace-filled, loving way of living in this world. It's a theology that invites us to know that being saved isn't just about one moment of transformation or acceptance of faith, but about a lifelong journey of letting our acceptance of God's love reshape us, remake us make us look more and more like Christ. The ongoing work of Christian perfection then, the work of being made holy, he also called it sanctification, which is a little more obviously connected to ideas of being made holy, being sanctified. The ongoing work of this perfection, this sanctification gives us practice at bearing love like God's. And I love that accompanying our text from 1 Corinthians this morning are these familiar verses from Jesus' Sermon on the Mount where he uses the metaphors of salt and light to describe our identity in the world. This metaphor of being the light of the world is an invitation to imagine what it can look like for our lives to shine with Christ-like love. There's a quality of light that helps us believe that it's possible for God to be visible in and through us. Wesley's theology and Jesus teaching in the Sermon on the Mount both elevate our worth, our value, our potential as humans, believing that we can be the ones who bring love to the world, who shine with a light. Not that we've manufactured it, figured out the formula for light, but that we have allowed light to shine through us. And that in shining through us, it becomes distinct and visible in a powerful way that couldn't happen if we hadn't been there. Maybe like a prism to refract the light or a stained glass window to add color and depth to the light, certainly uh, to let the light be visible here in this world, a part of our Christian work is to help love be visible here among us, to believe that we can be the ones who make that so, in whom love is visible. And so this is really our work all the time. But especially in the season of the epiphany, the work of bearing bearing and being light is before us to claim and own But the work of bearing and being Christ-like light is not simple or easy. And in Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he clarifies some of the difficulty and nuance in understanding what this glory looks like. And it's not wisdom as it's esteemed in the Greco-Roman culture that Paul lived in. It's not the Erudite, clever wisdom of learned and eloquent speakers. It's a something else. It's a wisdom that comes in unexpected, unconventional, and paradoxical ways. That comes not because of human cleverness, but because of God's goodness, God's depth of love. And in Paul, this wisdom is described as Jesus Christ and Christ crucified. Now, I confess that preaching Christ crucified is not my favorite version of Christ to preach. I tend to rest on a theology that honors and lifts up the power of incarnation as a part of God's saving work, that Christ being born into this world is already a fulfillment of our salvation. It elevates our lives, this life, this world, it saves us in a certain way. And of course, I love preaching the power of resurrection, not crucifixion, but the Easter miracle of Christ overcoming death, of Christ, a savior who cannot be contained even by death itself, even by the violence of this world. But Paul here keeps insisting that we not forget the saving power of a Christ who's crucified, a Christ who yields to death, who is victim of the state, of powers and principalities in his own time that felt threatened by the power he was bringing into the world. Even as it existed as an unlikely and paradoxical power, a power shown in love and weakness, in service and healing, His power was still opposed by uh, political powers and religious powers of his time. And so we preach a Christ crucified, a Christ who suffered and died. And while it's not my favorite theology to preach, this emphasis on Christ crucified, it's one that I sometimes have such deep need of. because. When I'm aware of the reality of suffering and death here in this world, it offers me a reminder that our God is a God who goes with us in this world, who knows and has experienced the depth of suffering that exists in this human life, the depth of cruelty caused by powers against threats the reality of grief borne by us humans. And in this moment in the life of the world, I'm so aware of a need for a love of God, a salvation that understands and makes sense of the reality of death and brokenness, of evil and oppression, of powers that seem beyond our control, and out of control in this world. And so we have, in Jesus crucified, an invitation to believe that this love that's preached to us by Jesus and Paul and John Wesley, this is a love that takes account of the brokenness of the world and sings still of a transforming, world-turning-over power that refuses to give in to the temptation to overpower and chooses always to love with a vulnerability and weakness that disempowers and overcomes with generosity and compassion and life. In the 20th century, theologians helped us reimagine our theology so that it would speak not only to Paul's context in the ancient Near East or to Wesley's context in England, but to our own realities, the challenges we face today theologies across the U.S. helped us give new form to understanding and articulating the power of Christ crucified. Certainly among them in the later part of the 20th century and into this millennium was the work of James Cone, whose work The Cross and the Lynching Tree in a decade ago helped us see in Christ's crucifixion the violence, the legacy of violence against Black Americans in the lynching tree, James Cohn invites us to see Jesus Christ as black. In his much earlier work, A Black Theology of Liberation, he invites us to this provocative possibility that Christ for us is black, that Christ for white and black and people of all colors. That Christ being black helps us understand and experience more deeply the gift of salvation. He writes in this book that came out in the 1970s In a society that defines blackness as evil and whiteness as good, the theological significance of Jesus is found in the possibility of human liberation through blackness. It's a wild idea. Sometimes we're tempted to say, of course Jesus can be black and white. We can imagine Jesus in the color of our own skin so that we can receive his gift for us. But it's another step entirely to accept that we would receive Jesus as bearing the marks of those who are pushed to the edges and disempowered that something about receiving the fullness of the salvation given to us in Christ requires that we receive Christ in the body of the ones who are most dispossessed or despised or judged against. That if we're going to understand the depth of Christ's offering of self for the sake of the world, we have to see Christ in the one we least expect to be the savior of everything. work has helped form a whole conversation that continues and expands as we wrestle with the significance of the cross for us. Not just an event that happened 2,000 years ago that somehow saved us from eternal punishment, but a demonstration of God's love that continues to work in us as we receive a salvation, a love that comes to us through brokenness, through dispossession of power, in a world that knows oppression and startles us, shakes us up because Christ's love sings with a power we can't expect, we can't make sense of, and that leaves us feeling conflicted inside. I've been reading this last week again about the work of the Reverend Polly Murray, who was a lawyer and later an Episcopal priest. She was one of the... First woman ordained in the Episcopal Church USA in 1977 and the first black American woman ordained in the Episcopal Church. Prior to that, she was a lawyer, graduating from college in the late 1920s. She entered a world both marked by economic depression and racial division. She was denied admission to the University of North Carolina because of the color of her skin and to Harvard University because she's a woman. Her scholarly work gave foundational arguments that were taken up by Thurgood Marshall and Ruth Bader Ginsburg in later arguments that would ensure a greater progress toward racial justice and uh, against sexism in our U.S. American laws. In her legal career, after finishing law school at Howard University, she struggled to find employment in the 1940s, and was hired by the Women's Division of the Methodist Church. The Women's Division. um, uh, this is a predecessor of what we've known as United Methodist Women, the organization that, organized by women in the church to live out Christ's love. The women's division hired Polly Murray to make what they thought would be a pamphlet describing different segregation laws in the states of the U.S. in 1948. It was meant to be a guide to churches, churches that were inclined to push against culture and not segregate and wanted help navigating where they were subject to or not subject to state laws, right? So it was... uh, the pamphlet that would go to the trustees and the pastor to figure out what the church could do. They thought it would be a pamphlet, but it ended up being 740-some pages, (laughs) which is overwhelming. It was a handbook used by the NAACP for decades to push back against segregation laws, but the simple fact that It was 740-some pages is a revelation of how evil works in the world, working tentacles and details into fine print everywhere so that it becomes a restriction that prevents forward movement, as if to stop the work of overcoming our racial division could just get bogged down in paperwork, impossible to extricate from all of the nooks and crannies it had wound its way into. Her work became uh, itself a declaration and existed as a guidebook for a way forward. I think of the power and persistence she must have had to compile all of those pages of documentation. The long persistence she lived in pushing back against restrictions that prevented her from accessing uh, schools and opportunities and places of leadership all her life. She lived into the 1980s and said near the end of her life that she was grateful to have lived long enough to see her lost causes found, which is a powerful way of acknowledging her persistence with lost causes when everyone told her it was pointless. This kind of persistence with lost causes is, I think, a beautiful way of characterizing the work of the gospel. The difference between wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God, which does not back down because it seems implausible or impractical. Because the evil we're pushing back against, the inevitability of the powers that be, These are no reasons for stopping in the work of movement forward toward justice and love. The call of our gospel is to be people who take up the causes that seem lost, that seem impossible, because we know a God of love who gave up God's self even on a cross, In order to stay committed, to hold integrity, to be loyal to the depth of love and justice that God has for the world, which sometimes works out in the world. Maybe if you live long enough, you get to see your lost causes found. But the righteousness of the work, the goodness and holiness, the holy work of pushing on toward love and justice, of letting forgiveness shape our lives, of having compassion be the lens with which we look at the world, these things are what we're called to when it seems practical and not, when it seems plausible and impossible. We're called to follow this same wisdom. It's almost as if, like light, God's love shines through us, and our call is to just let it be, let it shine, let it be visible through us. Not because we've calculated that the odds are good of this year being the year it all comes together, but because it's who God is. And if we let ourselves be a part of God, then it's who we have to be. People committed always to the cause of justice, to the work of liberation, to the offering of grace, and the living of compassion. We're those who are called to let this light shine. Not as lone individuals, but as a community of faith. All y'all are the light of the world, Jesus said. You all get to shine together with this powerful declaration of multifaceted, multicolored light that will draw the world closer and closer to God's love not because it seems obvious or powerful or we're likely to win, but because our God is a God crucified, who showed us how powerful and real and true this love is, now and in every moment and eternally. May it be so. Amen. Amen.